It's time now for the complete story with Rich and Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here are Rich and Dick Bott with today's complete story. Yeah, you know, Rich, um, I want to talk to our audience as Christians. I'm not going to talk about Republicans or Democrats. I want to talk to our audience as Christians. What do Christians stand for and what do Christians believe? And that's what we're going to discuss. That's right. That's right. It's not about Republican or Democrat. It's about right and wrong. It's about righteousness. You know, the listener comment line sometimes says, well, you know, there's some politics that I hear on Bot Radio Network. But I'll tell you this, folks. Let's clear it up. As far as the complete story is concerned, it's never about politics. It's about what's right and what's right according to the Word of God. So listen now. The first thing I want the folks to hear is what we call the Wichita song. I want them to know how that was written and how that came about. Because in Wichita, in the summer of 1991, there were some pro-life people that just gathered in Wichita. You see, that was the flashpoint for people who supported life even at their own peril, as opposed to people that supported death, because the country's America's number one third trimester abortionist was in the the city of Wichita. Can you imagine that? But that brings forces together to sort it out and find out who they are. And some of the reporting that we were doing, you and I were there, Rich, and there was a policeman and his wife in Illinois that heard that reporting, and their heart was broken. And they wrote this song and performed it. It's called the Wichita Song. And believe me, folks, I want everyone listening to take this song to heart, because what about you? And what about your church? And if you're a preacher, what are you saying? Because the Supreme Court now is the big battleground. The Supreme Court nominee of, what's his name, the nominee? Brett Kavanaugh. He is the right in the center. And President Donald Trump has nominated him for the Supreme Court. And the big battle is going to be over life and death and what is right and what is horribly wrong. Listen to this song. Did you hear a baby cry in Wichita today? Did something tug inside your heart as a life was torn away? Do situations trouble you where people take a stand? Don't you hear the thunder rumbling across our troubled land? satisfy your soul or should it take commitment for God's people to behold as clouds of darkness gather up what will we say and do would Christian witness persevere if left to me and you Where will the difference be? 
having me, Mr. Bott, and you're absolutely right. I was a registered nurse at Christ Hospital on the southwest side of Chicago when I discovered the hospital was not only involved in late-term abortions, but that the method of abortion that the hospital used sometimes resulted in babies being aborted alive 
And if they were aborted alive, they were allowed to die in the soiled utility room without any medical intervention whatsoever. So let's let's just stop there then. And this is the case where they intentionally intended to kill the kid. And they right. failed and they failed. And they failed. The child lived anyway. The child was alive anyway. There is the child alive and well, and not well, but is surviving uh, the attempt on its life. And, and so this is the scene uh, that you're describing, and you were a nurse in that hospital. Yes, and went to work there thinking I would be safe at a hospital named Christ from abortion, because who would think? But I found out that this was going on. And then one night, a nursing co-worker was taking a little abortion survivor to the soiled utility room because his parents didn't want to hold him, and she didn't have time to hold him that night. And he was a 21-week baby with Down syndrome. That's why he'd been aborted. And when she told me what she was doing, I couldn't bear the thought of this suffering child dying alone. And so I cradled and rocked him for the 45 minutes that he lived. Now, this is a, a hospital, Christ Hospital, for goodness sakes. Is that associated with a particular church or denomination? or what Yes, is it? it's affiliated with two denominations, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the United Church of Christ, which are both pro-abortion denominations, which is something I didn't even know existed, um, that a pro-abortion church denomination uh, back in the day. But now I know that it's it's relatively prevalent. So you were a young nurse in that in that ward, in that hospital, in that department, and so on and so forth. You probably heard whispers. You probably heard little little statements or something that you didn't quite understand or know about. Is it, am I describing this approximately the way it was? Well, actually, it was going on quietly in the in the labor and delivery department since 1978, and I worked in the department for a year and didn't know that it was going on all around me until one night I heard a report that we were aborting a second trimester baby, and that one also had Down syndrome, and that was the first that I heard about it. And even when the story went eventually public, um, nurses in the next department, the neonatal unit, didn't believe it. They didn't know it was going on either. So it was very hush-hush. Well, somebody had to know what was going on, and the truth is what you're describing is happening across America, and no more so than Planned Parenthood that is being supported by people's tax money. But go on. In other words, this is your bar mitzvah, as it were. This was your awakening as to what it was all about. Right. I'd been personally pro-life before that time, but needless to say, I think just about anybody who held an abortion survivor like I did for 45 minutes would be instantly converted into a pro-life activist. And I was. And so uh, I at first tried to appeal to the hospital privately to stop and followed the mandate of Matthew 18 when Jesus, you know, when you find someone in sin, you approach them privately, took back a couple of witnesses again privately, such as um, Cardinal Francis George of Chicago and Dr. C. Everett Koop, who was a pro-life surgeon general under President Reagan. He also appealed to the hospital. And when the hospital wouldn't stop, um, I went public. And this was in 1999, and I probably started talking to you not too long after that. Isn't that something? You see, that's her story. That's how she was awakened and this is what the battle is right now folks it's not democrat it's not republican it's not politics if you are a christian and even if you're not a christian are you civilized i mean wake up it starts with life and then of course a liberty that's freedom 
and then the pursuit of. But you don't put the pursuit of your happiness in front of your responsibilities when that child is yours. Take the responsibility at least to let them have life and then let them be adopted and let them absolutely. There's a lot of things that can be done and we have caring we have churches, and we now have to sort out how to do the right thing in the first place. Now, there was a congressman, interestingly, uh, Henry Hyde, and he was also from Illinois. Isn't that interesting? Because Illinois is not known for congressmen or senators that really take a stand on right versus wrong anymore. But everybody was doing everything they could, and of course, Congressman Henry Hyde was part of that mix of leadership. But it wasn't that he wanted to be on the team in Washington. He wanted to state his case, and if every pastor and every preacher could do the same, we wouldn't have churches that are either silent about abortion or they kind of think it's a good thing. They kind of support it. They kind of turn their head or maybe they say, well, it's somebody else's choice. Well, of course, it's not somebody else's choice to, whether or not to kill a child. I want the people to hear what Congressman Henry Hyde said on this subject on the floor of the House of Representatives. This is many years ago now because he's gone on to be with the Lord. Here it is. Mr. Speaker, I yield the balance of my time to the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Hyde, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. The gentleman from Illinois is recognized for 15 minutes. I ask unanimous consent to revise and extend my remarks. Without objection. And I also beg the indulgence of my colleagues not to ask me to yield because I cannot and will not, and I would appreciate the courtesy. I also want to say briefly that those who have charged us with politics, invidious politics, for delaying this ought to understand that Americans can't believe this practice exists. And it has taken months to educate the American people. And it'll take many more months to educate them as to the nature and extent of this horrible practice. That is one reason it has taken so long. Now, the law exists to protect the weak from the strong. That's why we're here. Mr. Speaker, in his classic novel, Crime and Punishment, <clears throat> Dostoevsky has his murderous protagonist Raskolnikov say, man can get used to anything, the beast, that we're even debating this issue, that we have to argue about the legality of an abortionist plunging a pair of scissors into the back of the tiny neck of a little child whose trunk arms and legs have already been delivered, and then suctioning out his brains only confirms Dostoevsky's harsh truth. We were told in committee by an attending nurse that the little arms and legs stop flailing and suddenly stiffen as the scissors is plunged in. People who say, I feel your pain, aren't referring to that little infant. What kind of people have we become that this procedure is even a matter for debate? Can't we draw the line at torture and baby torture at that if we can't? What's become of us? We're all incensed about ethnic cleansing. What about infant cleansing? There's no argument here about when human life begins. The child who's destroyed is unmistakably alive, unmistakably human, and unmistakably brutally destroyed. The justification for abortion has always been the claim that a woman can do with her own body what she will. Well, if you still believe 
that this four-fifths delivered little baby is a part of the woman's body, then I'm afraid your ignorance is invincible. I finally figured out why supporters of abortion on demand fight this infanticide ban tooth and claw. Because for the first time since Roe v. Wade, the focus is on the baby. Not the mother, not the woman, but the baby. And the harm that abortion inflicts on an unborn child, or in this instance, a four-fifths born child. That child, whom the advocates of abortion on demand have done everything in their power to make us ignore, to dehumanize, is as much a bearer of human rights as any member of this House. To deny those rights is more than a betrayal of a powerless individual. It betrays the central promise of America that there is in this land justice for all. The supporters of abortion on demand have exercised an amazing capacity for self-deception by detaching themselves from any sympathy whatsoever for the unborn child, and in doing so, they separate themselves from the instinct for justice that gave birth to this country. There's no moral, nor for that matter, medical justification for this barbaric assault on a partially born infant. Dr. Pamela Smith, Director of Medical Education in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital, testified to that, as have many other doctors. C. Everett Koop, Dr. C. Everett Koop, the last credible Surgeon General that we had, was interviewed by the American Medical Association. In so doing, he cited several cases in which women were told these procedures were necessary to preserve their health and their ability to have future pregnancies. How would you characterize the claims being made in favor of the medical need for this procedure? Quoting Dr. Koop, question, in your practice as a pediatric surgeon, have you ever treated children with any of the disabilities cited in this debate? Have you operated on children born with organs outside of their bodies? Answer, oh yes, indeed. I've done that many times. The prognosis is good. There are two common ways that children are born with organs outside of their body. One is an omphalocele, where the organs are out but still contained in the sac composed of the tissues of the umbilical cord. I have been repairing these since 1946. The other is when the sac is ruptured. That makes it a little more difficult. I don't know what the national mortality would be, but certainly more than half of those babies survive after surgery. Every once in a while you have other peculiar things, such as the chest, being wide open and the heart being outside the body. And I have even replaced hearts back in the body and had children grow to adulthood. Question, and live normal lives? Answer, living normal lives. In fact, the first child I ever did with a huge omphalocele, much bigger than her head, went on to develop well and become the head nurse in my intensive care unit many years later. The abortionist who is a principal perpetrator of these atrocities, Dr. Martin Haskell, has conceded that at least 80% of the partial birth abortions he performs are entirely elective, and he admits to over a thousand of these abortions, and that's some years ago. We're told about some extreme cases of malformed babies as though life is only for the privileged, the planned, and the perfect. Dr. James McMahon, the late Dr. James McMahon, listed nine such abortions he performed because the baby had a cleft lip. 
Many other physicians who care both about the mother and the unborn child have made it clear this is never a medical necessity, but it is a convenience for the abortionist. It's a convenience for those who choose to abort late in pregnancy when it becomes difficult to dismember the unborn child in the womb. If there is one consistent commitment that has su survived the twists and the turns of policy during this administration, it is an unshakable commitment to a legal regime of abortion on demand. Nothing is or will be done to make abortion rare. No legislative or regulatory act will be allowed to impede the most permissive abortion license in the democratic world. In his memoirs, Dwight Eisenhower wrote about the loss of 1.2 million lives in World War II. And he said the loss of lives that might have otherwise been creatively lived scars the mind of the civilized world. Mr. Speaker, our souls have been scarred by one and a half million abortions every year in this country. Our souls have so much scar tissue, there isn't room for any more. And say, what do we mean by human dignity if we subject innocent children to brutal execution when they're almost born? We all hope and pray for death with dignity. Tell me what's dignified about a death caused by having a scissor stabbed into your neck so your brains can be sucked out. We've had long and bitter debates in this house about assault weapons. Those scissors and that suction machine are assault weapons worse than any AK-47. You might miss with an AK-47. The doctor never misses with his assault weapon, I can assure you. It isn't just the babies that are dying for the lethal sin of being unwanted or being handicapped or malformed. We are dying, and not from the darkness, but from the cold, the coldness of self-brutalization that chills our sensibilities, deadens our conscience, and allows us to think of this unspeakable act as an act of compassion. If you vote to uphold this veto, if you vote to maintain the legality of a procedure that is revolting even to the most hardened heart, then please don't ever use the word compassion again. A word about anesthesia. Advocates of partial birth abortions tried to tell us the baby doesn't feel pain. The mother's anesthesia is transmitted to the baby. We took testimony from five of the country's top anesthesiologists and they said this impossible. That result would take so much anesthesia, it would kill the mother. By upholding this tragic veto, you join the network of complicity in supporting what is essentially a crime against humanity. For that little almost born infant struggling to live is a member of the human family. And partial birth abortion is a lethal assault against the very idea of human rights and destroys, along with a defenseless little baby, the moral foundation of our democracy, because democracy isn't, after all, a mere process. It assigns fundamental rights and values to each human being, the first of which is the inalienable right to life. One of the great errors of modern politics is our foolish attempt to separate our private consciences from our public acts, and it can't be done. At the end of the 20th century, is the crowning achievement of our democracy to treat the weak, the powerless, the unwanted as things to be disposed of? If so, we haven't elevated justice. We've disgraced it. This isn't a debate about sectarian religious doctrine nor about policy options. This is a debate about our understanding of human dignity. What does it mean to be human? 
Our moment in history is marked by a mortal conflict between a culture of death and a culture of life. And today, here and now, we must choose sides. I'm not the least embarrassed to say that I believe one day each of us will be called upon to render an account for what we've done and, maybe more importantly, what we failed to do in our lifetime. And while I believe in a merciful God, I believe in a just God. And I would be terrified at the thought of having to explain at the final judgment why I stood unmoved while Herod's slaughter of the innocents was being reenacted here in my own country. This debate has been about an unspeakable horror. And while the details are graphic and grisly, it has been helpful for all of us to recognize the full brutality of what goes on in America's abortuaries day in and day out, week after week, year after year. We're not talking about abstractions here. We're talking about life and death at their most elemental. And we ought to face the truth of what we oppose or support, stripped of all euphemisms. And the queen of all euphemisms is choice, as though you're choosing vanilla and chocolate instead of a dead baby or a live baby. Now, we've talked so much about the grotesque. Permit me a word about beauty. We all have our own images of the beautiful, the face of a loved one, a dawn, a sunset, the evening star. I believe nothing in this world of wonders is more beautiful than the innocence of a child. Do you know what a child is? She's an opportunity for love. And a handicapped child is an even greater opportunity for love. Mr. Speaker, we risk our souls, we risk our humanity when we trifle with that innocence or demean it or brutalize it. We need more caring and less killing. Let the innocence of the unborn have the last word in this debate. Let their innocence appeal to what President Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Let our votes prove Raskolnikov is wrong. There is something we will never get used to. Make it clear once again, there is justice for all, even for the tiniest, most defenseless in this our land. And I yield back the balance Mr. of my Chairman, time. Will you yield me? All right, all right. That was former Congressman Henry Hyde from Illinois. He delivered that speech on the floor of the House of Representatives. Where are we now, Rich? Well, right now, Dad, we, we're out of time, but well, we want to encourage our listeners to get involved now because that was about partial birth abortion, and today the battle is about the U.S. Supreme yeah. Court, which will impact us for a generation. Our listener comment line is 1-800-345-2621, 1-800-345-2621. And folks, this is Rich Bott for Dick Bott, my dad. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>